I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, the co-host of this podcast, and also this week I'll be introducing myself as Scabby the Rat. <laughs> I'm uh, Dean Detloff, also the co-host of this podcast, and this week I'll introduce myself as a communist pig. Communist dog, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> important important to get the mammal correct. Yeah, it is. Man, I wish there were more mascots on the left. I think that's something we could do we could do well with. If we just had a few more big blow up animals that uh were associated with leftist politics. I think it's good. Yeah, that's all right. Uh I'm gonna go down it's almost uh Halloween time. I'm gonna go to Spirit Halloween and I'm just gonna find some of the coolest, biggest inflatables and decide what uh, political tendency they represent. Put those <laughs> outside my house. All right. Well listen, we'll talk more about Halloween costumes on the Patreon only podcast. This week we got <laughs> this week we got Dan the premium Walden. content. Yeah, that's right. This week we got Dan Walden on the podcast. Uh Dan is a uh a PhD student at the University of Michigan um and a really cool guy who writes for current affairs and for the bias. Um yeah, Dean, what else can we say about Dan? Dan is a great Twitter follow if you're looking for those and who isn't these days. Um, yeah, Dan writes about uh, Christianity and socialism, but in particular, uh, how conservatives construe them, which is, I mean, not in particular, I shouldn't say. He has done some writing about those things, <laughs> um, among other things. And that writing is very interesting and cool. Um, he reads the bad books, so you don't have to. And I appreciate that service um, that I do not have the patience to provide. Uh, so in the first half of the episode, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, we'll talk about Dan's reading of these uh, wild conservatives talking about Christianity and socialism. And in the back half, uh, we especially wanted to have Dan on the show to talk to us about the recent strike at the University of Michigan. So if you didn't know that that had happened, it's over now. Um, but uh, at the beginning of um, the school year, right after Labor Day, the uh, Graduate Employees Organization at U of M voted to strike, which was illegal. And a very big deal. Um, and it lasted way longer than I think anybody had initially uh, expected. They got a ton of support from other people at the university, like um, the uh, residential um, uh, assistants and dining hall workers and other trade unions. And it was just a, a huge deal and a lot of um, wild stuff happened. So we'll talk first about Christianity and socialism. Then we'll ask Dan about the anatomy of that strike and we'll bring it all around at the very end to put all these uh, pieces together. All right, let's go to Dan. This week on the Magnificast, we're joined by Dan Walden. Uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, whenever we have a guest, we always ask them to introduce themselves. So uh, we'll ask you just to do the same. Uh, you're a writer, you're a Catholic, you're a socialist, all those very good things. Uh, but how would you describe your deal? Uh, yeah. Hi, Matt. Hi, Dean. Uh, really great to be here. I've uh, been, been a longtime fan. I would say I am uh, a, you know, a, I'm a Catholic socialist academic. I, I, I'm, so, I'm, some, I'm someone who's, who's interested in writing for a popular audience, um, in part probably because my academic interests are so wildly, like, not popular i would like to do something useful uh for for other people and as fascinating as i find uh you know formulaic language and archaic greek poetry uh i i don't think that's uh 
particularly useful to my fellow human being. Uh, so I write about other things instead. Uh, not useful yet, but just wait. Um, the revolution's right around the corner, and that's that's all anyone's going to want to know about. Um, could you say maybe a little bit about your uh, academic interests, just so people have an idea of uh, what you study as your part of your day job? Uh, yeah, I'm 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 a grad student. Um, I'm I'm on the uh, the ver- very last uh, stages uh, of, <coughs> of of my dissertation. I uh, uh, in in classics. I work uh, yeah, primarily on on Homer and archaic Greek poetry. I'm very very interested in words and what they do and what they and what and what they can't do, which is also I think probably part of my theological interest as well uh, in in the things that we can't say. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, I can see, I think anyway, some uh, not completely tangential connections to your uh, political interests. So that's great. Uh, like you said, you've written for, um, you know, a popular audience on a, a number of occasions, some really cool stuff for the bias uh, for current affairs in particular about socialism and Christianity. And you especially engage a lot of conservative Christians who are writing about socialism, which I think is really fun. We'll ask you a lot more about that in a minute. But recently you wrote an article in Current Affairs called Was Jesus a Socialist? that reviews a book by Lewis Reed of the, the same name, Was Jesus a Socialist? So give us the scoop. Was he a socialist? Was he not a socialist? Um, <laughs> what do you have to say about it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 get a, I get annoyed, especially when like, people on the right ask that question. Um, actually, I get annoyed when liberals ask that question, too. Um, because I think it's often a way, I, the question is often a way of not having the conversation about, about whether Christians ought to be socialists, getting bogged down in, uh, historical details, uh, you know, historical fights about the reliability of this or that evidence and what is a socialist and whatever. Um, I mean, I think the, for me, the answer is, is like trivial, uh, which he wasn't, um, he was living in first century Palestine. We didn't have capitalism. Uh, there were no political conditions under which anything we would call socialism could could take shape. Uh, I don't think it's useful or responsible to talk about Jesus as a socialist or whatever. You lose something, I think, when you try to say that you know a, a particular um, secular or modern political ideology is you know the ideology of Jesus or whatever. Uh, Jesus is not you know Jesus is not a socialist in part because because. <clears throat> Jesus is is the end. Jesus Jesus is is God with us. Um, Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God, uh, in which in, in which uh, we have to attempt to live. Socialism, I think, I think is a a way of getting us, uh, you know, of 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 helping us live better, live more in a in in the kingdom of God than certainly than we are right now. Um, but to talk about Jesus as so to, I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't like, um, wrestling with the question because I think it, yeah, it misses the point of, uh, you know, what should we be doing? Yeah. I think that makes some sense. Um, I think I'd agree. You know, you mentioned, uh, part of your interest in your academic study is just like learning what, what language does and like what words do. And what do you think these do though? Like, it's almost like a a meme for liberal Christians to say that Jesus was a socialist or something. What do you think those words do like in conversation? Like what, why do people bother saying them? Is it just bombastic and like eliciting response to people who actually believe that? Um, I don't know. Why is that like a, a thing that people even bother with? For, for a lot of liberal Christians, uh, it's an exp- I mean, this kind of thing was a lot more popular in in like two major eras of American history: uh, the the sixties and seventies, <clears throat> in opposition to the Vietnam War, and also in the uh, in the two thousands uh, as a as an expression of. I I think it a lot of times it it, it ends up being an expression of. Um, dissatisfaction with contempt for a, a rejection of the kind of right-wing evangelicalism that ha- has has come to exercise uh you know so much um power in american politics uh by <clears throat> by saying you know jesus was a socialist uh you know you you you're signaling a rejection of that kind of thing but I think it's also, you know, you see in there the the seeds of the kind of liberal fact-checking brain disease that has sort of dominated 
um, the, you know, liberal, the, the liberal commentariat in the Trump era. Um, it's a, you know, you're making a statement. You're saying, you know, oh, you got the facts wrong. You, you, you read this wrong. But, you know, so what? Um, what, the, what the, what's the upshot of that supposed to be? I mean, uh, if, if the upshot of that is supposed to be, you know, convert, repent, change your ways, you know, you don't, you don't get people to convert through a fact check. Uh, that's not evangelism. That's, that's, that's not preaching. Um, if your, if your purpose is to convert people, you need to engage a little more deeply. You need to, to meet them somewhere and speak to them, uh, rather than, you know, pretending that you're Glenn Keyser at the Washington Post, uh, and you know, and say, and awarding, you know, awarding, uh, you know, awarding the Southern Baptist Convention three Pinocchios or whatever. Yeah, that's like the like the worst form of um, liberal apologetics or something. Uh, <laughs> like not not dealing with uh, cool metaphysical arguments or bad metaphysical arguments, but just uh, I don't know weird political narratives. <laughs> that that makes sense. Um, well, maybe you could say a little bit more about that, though. So, yeah, there's a liberal way of saying, was Jesus a socialist? Then the implicit answer is, is yes, but it kind of evacuates both maybe uh, what Jesus means and what socialism could mean. Um, but, uh, you know, conservatives do this, too, and uh, they'll say, no, Jesus wasn't a socialist. Could you maybe say more about what that rhetorical move means? Like, uh, how does Jesus kind of become to be come to be like a... I don't know, like a stand-in for rejecting socialism because you are for Jesus or something. What, what's your impression, having uh, looked quite a lot at these conservative uh, construals? You know, there's a solid genealogy, as as I mean, and as as you both, I'm sure, are aware. As as a lot of listeners to the podcast, I'm sure, are aware. Um, you know, there have been powerful Christian churches. Um, alliances of Christians in opposition to every socialist movement, uh, um, especially, especially in countries that have uh, a, that, that have a state, that have some kind of uh, established state church. Um, you very often find, very, very often find uh, the clergy and uh, many of sort of the, the, the whole sort of power apparatus of 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 uh, institutional religion arrayed against socialist activists, um, uh, e- even you know, very often against socialist activists who are maybe themselves like low level clergy or or are are you know, members members of their churches. So in in one sense, they're redeploying, you know, pretty standard right wing um, rhetoric again. You know, that you know, well, 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 Jesus stands for you know. Uh, a well-ordered, harmonious society. It's <clears throat> part part of it. I think is this: they want you to buy the idea that a um, that a, a disruption in the social order will somehow inhibit the practice of Christian love. Uh, and that's the the hidden premise here, which I think I, mean, I think a lot of them are not even thinking of. Um, I think that premise is there that, that social upheaval is, is somehow um, contrary to or uh, destructive of Christian love. And then I mean, some I mean some of it is is really is um, just pure bad faith. I mean I think I think the Lawrence Reed book uh, the, it was uh, written in enormous intellectual bad faith. Uh, you know I I think it was I think it was basically deliberately a a kind of MP propaganda piece. Uh, that was not intended to actually be useful to anybody. Um, uh, I, I think, I think that I think it contrasted in that way with with the, the Matt Walsh book that I had reviewed right before that, uh, which I mean, obviously did contain some bad, some right wing bad faith. I mean, I think very few of us write without deploying some kind of bad faith in general. I I've, I've certainly been guilty of it sometimes, uh, but I think it was overall. You know, a, a relatively sincere book um, <clears throat> that did make some attempt to sort of grapple with some of the contradictions of his position. Uh, I don't think he grappled with them particularly well, but um, that's the kind of thing that I think you can talk to. Um, <clears throat> uh, that <clears throat> it's 
an opposition that is sincere, but one that is also sort of open to engagement. You you find that, I think, more among, I think, lower level people who are not sort of at the top of the political machinery of the right. Uh, Whereas somebody like Reed, who's heads up this sort of major libertarian libertarian think tank. um, I, I mean, I don't doubt that he is a believing Christian who goes to church, but I I have serious doubts about sort of the sincerity of that book uh, at all. Uh, yeah, as you're talking, um, it's hard for me to imagine uh, Matt Walsh in good faith, but I guess I also don't have the uh, the good faith to <laughs> read him either, which is a great uh, way to ask you, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time engaging conservative Christian writing on politics. Um, and uh, why? Like, <laughs> why do you find that kind of thing interesting? What makes it worth your time? You know, what's the what's the payoff uh, or why? Why do you want to um, kind of explore that uh, that stuff? I didn't actually set out to do that, actually. Um, what really mostly happened was that uh, people sent me books. Uh, Nathan Robinson has a habit of uh, buying terrible right wing books and then, then, then uh, announcing that he is sending them to you. Uh, if you are a person he thinks would review it well, I had written for Current Affairs. I had written that I had written a, a, a pretty lengthy review of Gene McCarrer's uh, uh, Enchantments of Mammon, um, <clears throat> and so I can say it put me on the radar. I can say that put a target on my back. I think it's probably saying much the same thing. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> um, that I was I was approached uh, by the bias um, to review. Um, Trent Horn and Catherine Packer looks can a Catholic be a socialist, which is was is just a remarkably horrible book. Somehow the book itself is less horrible than Trent Horn himself, who then dogged me on Twitter for two weeks, uh, you know, asking if I'd fucked lately. Um he's a really, really hideous man. Um Yikes. but the initial upshot to this, you know, is uh that people were, were offering to to pay me money to write these reviews. Um, which is an excellent uh uh excellent incentive. Uh, especially for someone in graduate school. But I do find the project interesting, I think. Um, I mean, I, <clears throat> I've i had friends for a number of years, I mean, I, as one sort of has to, um, you know, living in, in Southeast Michigan, who, sh- who share religious convictions with me and don't share political beliefs. Um, <clears throat> and, and we've had very good friendships and also very productive conversations with one another. Um, <clears throat> so this this is sort of something I've, been doing sort of part-time you know, on a very sort of local level for a while it is worthwhile to engage for those of us for those of us who are able to do it who it is worthwhile to engage with people as fellow christians and to have a serious conversation with them about what that means politically about what how we see our Christian values mandating that we act politically in a certain way. I mean, if if somebody is is, you know, is very seriously religious, those those conversations can often be very very productive. I think it's work that's worth doing for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I think it's possible uh, to do. Two, I think it's good to have a diversity of of Christian perspectives in the print media um, and, and, and to showcase them on the left. And I think because there are plenty of people in this country who are sincerely religious, who, who are best spoken to and talked to in a religious idiom. Um, and I think I mean, the Democratic Party has basically entirely lost the ability to do that. Uh, they, they, they just don't do it anymore. Uh, and I mean, I, I, I'm of the opinion that the Democratic Party is, in fact, incredibly hostile to any kind of sincere religious belief, uh, that if you exhibit that, you're, you're going to be sidelined. The Dems admire somebody like Reverend William Barber for, from a distance, uh, but they're not letting him in the decision rooms. Um, and and that because I think they, they are suspicious of people who have overriding kind of transcendental um, value commitments. Because those people can't be part of can't be part of a political machine, uh, and that's a threat to the way the Democrats do business. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, maybe we can return to that in just a minute. Um, 
But but before we do that, something you met, you mentioned a minute ago um, that you can have um, productive conversations with other religious people who aren't necessarily uh, socialists or share your particular political beliefs. I, I, maybe we could talk about that for a second. Um, you've done this kind of like <laughs> reading behind enemy lines, so to speak. You've read these like uh, these conservative folks, and you you know you're having conversations with your friends who are not necessarily socialists. Um, but like um, I don't know, like how do you make arguments or conversations even about socialism and Christianity stick to folks who aren't aren't uh, aren't fellow socialists, aren't fellow believers in that type of Christianity? Um, you know, like some people are going to just be like obstinate and not listen to you no matter what you say. But like, uh, I don't know, what's what's the what strategies have worked for having those kinds of productive discussions? I think like as um, I, I don't know if this is true for everybody, but at least in my own life, as I see like some some friends and family members become like more and more like radicalized by like right wing forces. This is a a conversation and a, a thing that I'm very interested in. Like, how do we talk to these folks that uh, share our religion, but not our politics? You have to start, uh, you, I mean, you have, you have to start with the gospel. If you're starting and it's very clear, I think that you're going to have, you know, a, a, a primarily political discussion with a primarily political agenda. Um, I don't think that, I don't think those are bad discussions to have, but I think that, I think that some people are very averse to them and that, <clears throat> You know, as as a as a prudential matter, uh, in terms of what a you know successful successful strategy, that's not perhaps the way to start. Um, I mean, I I have usually I've started with you know the things that we value in common, and you know and you know what does it mean to love your neighbor? I mean, what 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 is the what really are the demands that Christ lays on us because they're very, very severe. Um, I think you know. I think pretty much everybody agrees on that. If you if you go through and you uh, and you take the the commands and the commandments of Christ seriously, you you don't you don't have wiggle room here. You have to live for other people because that because that is how we train ourselves in love i mean the greatest commandment is to uh love the lord your god and the second is is like it to love your neighbor as yourself as it turns out these are unbelievably difficult things to do um and we can't do them off the bat but thankfully we have been given uh much more attainable um disciplines um we have we've been told to feed the hungry to water the thirsty, to clothe the naked, to ransom the captive, um, and because those are things that train us and are stepping stones to being able to love people the way that we should. And I think if you start from there, from a you know from the 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 thing, what what are we what are we commanded to do and why? I think in my experience. I have gotten a lot further um, than I think. Uh, I've gotten a lot further than 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 I at first expected. I'm not going to say I've been 100% successful every time. I, you know, I have plenty of friends who are, you know, who are not on, you know, who are who are not, you know, looking to storm the Winter Palace. You know, I, I know that I successfully convinced a number of people that if you are that that as you know as conservative. Christians who valued sort of strong families and and local community, um, they had no choice but to vote in the Democratic primary for Bernie Sanders. Um, uh, I was like, look, you know, you, if you you want if you want people to have local community ties, uh, if you want people to have the families they want to have, uh, if you want to see a reduction in the number of abortions, uh, if that's your thing, um, you know. You, you should vote you should vote for the socialist guy because all of that is is let me the, the num we have the numbers those things would all happen under under a you know a, a, a social democratic presidency like bernie sanders um and you know that i mean i don't know what they're gonna do in the general but uh you know i i i, I made that leap at least for some people um and i think that was at least some that's at least some kind of success I'm not sure how you do it in term in, in you know 
in relationships where you where you don't you don't already have sort of a pre-existing relationship with someone uh i think that's much harder um i mean i which is you know my way of doing that is by writing uh and it's not going to land with everybody uh as as you said matt it's uh you know so, i mean some people are just not interested in hearing it and you know there's not really a whole lot you can do about that um some people or maybe you're just not reading at the right time. Um, you know, I, I don't know. You know we, we can never know why, but um, I think the most important thing is you just, you just keep trying to have these conversations and, tr and, and, try to, and try to make it clear that you're talking in good faith. Um, and if they want to answer that and if they want to have a conversation in good faith, then maybe you can get somewhere. Maybe you won't, but you know, I've had enough good ones that I think it's a worthwhile thing to, for me to try to do, um, you know, both in person and sort of remotely um, uh, in my writing. Yeah, I think that's helpful and pretty illuminating um, to, you know, to that block uh, for, for like right wing folks. If you don't mind, if we go back to one thing yeah. you said uh, a while back now, kind of the same question, but from a different angle, you kind of mentioned there's this sort of block within the Democratic Party about um, about like people with transcendental <laughs> uh, values or people, you know, who believe in um, uh, like who ultimately believe in religion um, above like the uh, the program of the Democratic Party or something. Yeah. Like what what do you think is going on with that that type of block? Right. Like yeah, on the one hand, there's the there's a right wing block where they don't want to hear about, uh, you know, socialist politics. and You have to find ways to break through that. But like what's going on from the other direction, from liberals? Um, I think the in, 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 in the case of, of like liberal Dems, I think it's just sort of it's 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 this idea of of. Um, I mean, it, I think it's political pragmatism because the party is dedicated to preserving the jobs and the power of, of you know, the, of very, very long established democratic politicians. And it's dedicated to pr providing a steady stream of consulting jobs for the dumbest people in the Ivy League. Um, and uh, just the, uh, the absolute dregs of the Ivies. Having people who are not sort of with the program, who are not willing to sort of pull back when the party says to pull back. Who are actually determined to get something done, um, who have very, very serious moral commitments, is a huge thorn in their side. I mean, you see it in the way that they, you know, the way that they treat, uh, you know, the way they treat uh, young Democratic politicians who are whose sort of calling card is a very serious moral commitment. Uh, people like people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, people like Ilan Omar, people like Rashida Tlaib, you know, one of whom is Catholic, two of whom are, are Muslims, all three are marked by, a, you know, having very, very serious moral commitments, wherever, wherever those commitments are coming from, um, and, you know, who are, are not willing to, to, to compromise on moral questions. Uh, and, yeah, I think that's... <clears throat> That's it's a pain for a party that is built largely around a kind of feigned helplessness. It's no threat to Chuck Schumer's and Nancy Pelosi's jobs if they're if they're a minority party if they can't get anything done. It is a huge threat to their jobs if they become a majority party and uh, then suddenly people expect them to get things done um, because if they don't do those things, then they might be voted out. Yeah, I think um, that dislike for you know I think for very seriously religious people. Is symptomatic of, of 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 this sort of larger thing of this larger problem the Democratic Party has with people who have serious moral commitments that they're not willing to back down from. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. You know, people talk of, about um, you know the the religious left, the Christian left, you know, whatever, constantly, and um, we're we're always you know journalists are always trying to describe what it looks like and how it works. But I guess like what's really interesting about about what you're saying here is that uh, you know that's those are fine questions and like we should investigate that or whatever. But like the Democratic Party has uh, already inoculated itself against that type of, um, you know, moral commitment. So in the end, like the the power analysis is incomplete without that sort of bit. It's pretty interesting. Ultimately, I think, you know, I think that the Dems have are making the same calculus as the Republicans. But they because of the situation on the ground with their voters, they had to make a different decision. Um, the Republicans have. um the Republicans have dealt with the, with the, the problem of, of transcendent values <clears throat> by 
basically cultivating a form of American Christianity whose whose tenets are whatever happens to be the platform of the Republican Party. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, a, a form of American evangelicalism that ultimately uh, mutates uh, into whatever the Republican Party needs it to be. Um, <clears throat> that's one way of solving that problem. Um, the Dems can't do that. Their 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 base is too. Uh, is too diverse in terms of class, is too diverse in terms of race, is too diverse in terms of religious upbringing. Um, they can't um, cultivate that kind of monolith. Um, that they can't cultivate a, a, a you know a religious a religious institutional monolith that's going to take uh, <clears throat> going to take its platform straight from them. Um, <clears throat> so the 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 other way to do that is to basically just do your best to make sure that the people who win power in your party uh, are, uh, you know, as, as, as gutless and reptilian as possible. I think they would love to be able to do what the Republicans did, uh, but they can't, uh, the, the demographics just don't allow for it. Uh, so they do the next, they're going to do the next best thing and just, yeah, shut out, shut out a, anybody who has, um, you know, moral commitments that would interfere with, with, uh, their taking marching orders from the democratic party. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, uh, Man, as you're talking about it, I'm kind of um, I'm really curious about sort of the the idea of uh, on the one hand a moral commitment as you're saying as you're talking about it and how that relates to being a a person who says they're religious or publicly religious and maybe where those things do and don't come up. Um, I kind of want to talk about it, but I also want to uh, <laughs> avoid the risk of uh, becoming uh, too wonky on this podcast, which we try extremely hard not to be. Um, and so I think I'm going to I'm going to listen to my my inner uh, my inner communist and and try to uh, stop speculating about the Democrats and instead ask you uh, about how socialism is, you know, more than ideas, which you're very, very gifted at uh, explaining. And, and we're really grateful for it. But we're also very happy to have you here to talk to us a bit about what's been happening um, on the ground, uh, specifically at the University of Michigan. Um, you know, we, as we said in the introduction, and as you uh, have been posting and tweeting and writing about, uh, there was a huge, uh, very important and very uh, exciting and surprising strike that happened at the university recently. Um, graduate students went on strike out of concern over the university's reopening plan and campus safety, and then all kinds of other things happened <laughs> after that. Uh, so we're really happy that you're uh, here to tell us a little bit about that, being a, a person who's involved at the University of Michigan as a, a graduate student um, in your own kind of way. So maybe we could start out and ask you to just tell us a little bit about your relationship to the strike, and then we can ask you a little bit more about the strike itself. I supported the strike. I, I participated in the strike by withholding my academic labor. I am not someone who was directly affected by it because I, I I'm on my last term, so I'm 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 on fellowship for this term. The people, the primary people who were withdrawing their labor were the graduate student instructors. Uh, what a what a lot of a lot of universities call TAs, but um, in Michigan they're called graduate student instructors. And then also uh, the the GSSAs, and I don't remember exactly what it stands for, but the are graduate students who, who are who are in uh, who have who have uh, uh, administrative jobs. Um, they, they are also pr uh, covered by the union contract. The, the University of Michigan has been uh, unionized since 1974. We organized with the, uh, the American Federation of Teachers. I have been a dues-paying member of the union for a long time. Uh, I was I was my department shop steward uh, earlier in my graduate career. Uh, I'm I'm a, a huge believer in it, and so I was very happy to support the strike uh, and, and to to go out on the picket lines. I had some investment in it as well because I was supposed to defend my dissertation in mid July. Uh, I was supposed to be done. Um, then in March, uh, uh, all the shutdowns happened. The library, the library's totally, the university library's totally shut down. Um, and uh, I had no more access to books. My my committee and I were in kind of a holding pattern. We waited for uh, news from the university about what this would mean for people like in my situation. Uh, they had taken some measures um, to give relief to people who were supposed to like defend in the spring. Um, we basically got nothing. We were a small enough minority, the people who were defending in the summer, that um, they didn't really feel obliged to um, do anything uh, to help us out. I'm very fortunate to have an extremely supportive department. They moved, moved some mountains and found some money for me, uh, which is why I'm able to finish this term. because I, I was also at the end of my funding rope. 
don't think anyone should have to go through that. One of the planks of that strike that meant a whole lot to me was a universal extension, a universal funding extension for all the currently enrolled graduate students uh, who had had the research disrupted or the degree progress disrupted in one way or another by this long shutdown. I don't think people should have to rely on the charity of their departments or, or on, 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 on their departments, you know, having been good money managers and having some spare cash lying around. I'm glad my, I'm very glad mine did. I'm very glad that they, that they support me. I don't think, you know, they shouldn't have had to, they shouldn't have had to find, they shouldn't have had to dig around in their own, in their own money to, to support one of their students because this is a university wide problem. And then on top of that, I, I have a lot of friends in, you know, in the Ann Arbor community who have, uh, who ha- either have school aged children or who work in the public schools. And um, the Ann Arbor Public Schools, this is maybe not widely known, the Ann Arbor Public Schools very much wanted to go um, at least partway in person for their instruction this fall and had the facilities to carry that out, but in a pretty safe way. But the university's reopening, they, at the school board, judged that the university's reopening plan was so irresponsible that they could not in good conscience open the school. A lot of kids in Ann Arbor, a lot of kids in Ann Arbor public schools have parents who are in some way associated with the university, their, their faculty or their staff. Um, or maybe they work in the medical school. Um, and the, the way the university's reopening plan was playing out, I mean, those kids would have been, you know, would have been exposed, probably I mean, have been exposed. And then if they had gone to school, then they would have they would have exposed other kids as well, and it would have been really disastrous. So this this was a strike for graduate students, um, for the for the, the safety of the Ann Arbor community, um, and and I mean for a safe response more broadly, because one of the things that, that I'm sort of most proud of is the way that that stri- the way that, that our strike tied together its anti policing demands with uh, with. Uh, with a safe pandemic response, and I think that that was very much the right thing to do. It just made complete sense. Uh, if you're if you're relying, part of the university's response was to increase um, uh, university police presence on campus, um, and University of Michigan Department of Public Safety are, um, you know, they, they have they, they're they're police officers. They have full arresting authority. They they carry firearms particularly after the events of this past spring and summer, uh, if I mean, you, it, you, cannot, you cannot in good faith make the argument that putting more armed police on campus makes black and brown community members safer. It doesn't. It's 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 completely insane to even to even think that. And so uh, you know that was that was part of our platform because if, uh, you know we <clears throat> we said that you know everyone deserves a safe campus, and that safety you cannot claim to be creating a safe campus if you are mortgaging the safety of some people of 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 black and brown people in order to in order to buy the illusion of safety for white people. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It was cool to see how that developed alongside the strike. The strikers rolled all of these community demands in, in, into what they were protesting, and I think it ended up being very powerful. Um, I mean, at least the the community response definitely attests to, to the power of, of the strike. Um, something that really sticks out to me about the strike that um, is probably worth talking about a little bit is that it was an illegal strike. And I think that is, I mean, it kind of gets buried in the, in the story a little bit, but like what, what was going on there? Like, why was it illegal? How did, how did that, um, the, the legality aspect play into the, the larger struggle? It, yeah, it was, an illegal, it was an illegal strike um, for, for, for multiple reasons. Um, one is that um, public employees in the state of Michigan are not allowed to strike. Uh, that it's that's just against the law. But it, it was also a violation of our contract. Our, you know, like many labor contracts, we have a no strike clause for the for the duration of the contract. Um, <clears throat> and we 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 just signed this uh, this latest contract uh, this this past spring. <clears throat> um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a fresh contract. <clears throat> uh, this is not the first illegal strike we action that we have um, voted for about three a little more than three years ago. We were getting ready. We, we were in negotiations. Um, our contract, the contract is the contract is not up until until the uh, the beginning of May. Uh, so, and uh, the school year always ends at the end of April. So, any strike during the school year is going to be an illegal strike. But we were reaching a stalemate of negotiations, and the union 
uh, authorized a strike. We ended up not having to call it um, because uh, that that authorization got us the kind of movement we wanted at the bargaining table. You know, we're not strangers to calling illegal strike actions. This is the first um, actual strike action we've had in in a number of years uh, where we actually had to go through with it. It was definitely it definitely figured into our pl- into the planning. Um, I was not intimately involved with the the planning myself. Um, <clears throat> I know some I know some people who were, um, <clears throat> and uh, what they've told me, and also from our from our, from our union meetings, it was it was not something we were afraid of at first because the court systems move very slowly. Because the administrations, even during an illegal strike action, <clears throat> if it's a large strike, it's easiest for them if they can end the strike without. With, you know, without going to a court, you know, they don't have to pay. They don't have to pay legal fees. They don't have to <clears throat> uh, endure the press uh, of of going to court. Normally, before you know, when when a strike is declared, the, the university comes with an offer. Um, that didn't happen this time. <clears throat> they did not have an offer package ready for us on um, on the the night before the strike was to begin, uh, and so we went in for it. Um, day after Labor Day was when it started. As the strike drew on, a couple of days later, they did give us an offer package. We rejected it. We ended up rejecting it. Um, it was it, it was not enough movement on the things we wanted, and you know, and that was when um, you know the stakes started to get real, because um, you know part of the part of the deal that we were offered obviously was a was a non retaliation clause. There there'd be no retaliation against the union. There'd be no retaliation against any individual members. Um, <laughs> And you know, in illegal, and if your strike is illegal, they can retaliate against you. You know, the the, the law is on their side, and you're you're not gonna you're you're not gonna win those court cases. We rejected it. Um, we had some momentum building. Um, that that had, was also the day that the the campus the campus RAs started striking. Uh, that was really really powerful. I had been praying to Saint Joseph the Worker uh, about uh, about this strike, and then you know the the morning after the morning after I did, I find out that the RAs are striking, uh, and you know I, I I thought that was a miracle. Uh, it was really remarkable. Um, and then uh, a couple of days later, the dining hall workers staged a uh, a work slowdown and and slowed the dining halls to a crawl. And we and we and we got you know we we had support. From uh, local trade unions as well. That, that was that was a really key part of our power. Why we were able to keep the heat on the university was because we were able to halt construction projects. And we were able to halt deliveries um, because those because the, the the trade unions respect our picket lines. That made it less scary for us. It started to get scary when the university actually you know went to court. <clears throat> um, you know they filed for an injunction, and we knew they were going to get it. And that carried with it the threat that I mean, they, if they got if they got that injunction, we kept striking. They could get damages. They could, and that and that would have financially bankrupted our union. And so that did end up figuring into our our decision about whether whether to take the offer or not. A lot of people felt, uh, I and I agree with them that you know we didn't take the offer because it was good. Um, we got some really important things. Um, we got some some. Um, much better support for for graduate students who are parents. We got you know a permanent increase in resources for international students. Uh, that's incredibly important, uh, and and <clears throat> the benefits of those are going to be felt by a lot of by a lot of people. We got some meetings with with the regents and um, some seats on on like upcoming university committees. And I mean, I'm very much a cynic about about the, about committees. <clears throat> you know, committees are where you send a good idea to die in a university, but. Um, to get even a tiny bit of movement like that on on when we you know when we when we were giving them you know really straightforward really radical anti policing demands was really really remarkable. Um, so you know I don't want to I don't want to um, I don't want to downplay um, what what the the hard work of all of our, our organizers and all of our members got us. Um, but you know the deal was not great. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, if we, I think, you know, if we hadn't been under threat, <clears throat> uh, if the union hadn't been under threat, you know, I think there's a very good chance we would not have taken that deal. Well, the struggle continues as always, I guess. But uh, you've certainly put uh, a lot on the table. I appreciate that you, you helped us figure out, uh, you know, how it started, built some momentum and, and where it ended up. Uh, it's always good to kind of get like an anatomy picture of strikes and, um, you know, have an idea of like how these things really work right beyond uh, all that we say and articles or whatever. Um, I think, though, uh, if I could 
end this conversation kind of coming back to some of the things we started with. You know, strikes, uh, they mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, it's where people get access to sudden uh, political education and transformation, whether they like it or not. <laughs> you uh, learn quite a lot in the middle of those kinds of events. And, you know, as a Christian socialist reflecting on this yourself, I'm curious about what that strike means to you. And especially I'm thinking in terms of things you've already said about how it's difficult in today's political landscape in terms of the two major parties to be a, a person of conviction, a person of moral or, or religious uh, commitment um, and find a, a place there. Uh, but strikes, of course, are, are also those kind of wild events that happen um, outside of, you know, polite uh, jurisprudence or whatever. Um, so, yeah, thinking about what you've sort of been part of, uh, you know, in, in that capacity and, and the solidarity you've witnessed, et cetera, praying to St. Joseph and so on. Um, yeah. How, how are you sort of interpreting those events uh, for you? I view the strike you know, very much as as someone who, who's been who's been a teacher, who's been an educator. Um, <clears throat> I don't remember where I read this. I think somebody posted it on, on Facebook and they I, they had gotten it from somewhere. Um, <clears throat> I think it came from one of the teacher strikes um, from last year. Just because teachers are striking doesn't mean they're not teaching. Um, and I, I thought, I think that I think that was very true. And I saw it myself. Graduate student strikes are interesting because um, undergraduates are much closer often to their to their graduate instructors than they than, than they are to their professors. I mean, they, they see us, you know, not incorrectly. I think as occupying a kind of <clears throat> intermediate place. Um, you know, and, and we do, we, we are, we're teachers, but we're also fellow students. We have a lot of the same concerns that they do. Um, we, you know, in, in sort of the larger structure of campus, you know, we can find ourselves in some of the same, um, like campus organizations. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm part of a, of a men's choir on campus, uh, that has, a fair number of graduate members, but that's mostly undergraduates. the The group is the group is all very is all very close to one another, and I so I got to see sort of firsthand that this strike really was a kind of education for people. It was a way of showing, in really concrete terms, um, both what solidarity means, what it means to practice solidarity in a meaningful and deliberate way, and what's at stake. Even you know, even undergraduates, you know, from very kind of um, you know, conservative backgrounds. Uh, you know, I saw, you know, looking at the at the geo demands and saying, you know, yeah, a I, you know, a lot of these, I really see what's going on. Uh, so many of them are obviously a lot more speculative about the anti-policing demands, but um, a lot more receptive to them, I think, than they would have been in the past. They saw what was going on in the news. Uh, they saw the death the deaths of George Floyd. They saw the, the they heard about the death of Breonna Taylor. Um, you know, they're raised in a conservative setting, but that doesn't mean that they don't have, you know, a, a, a d well-developed moral sense. And I think they realized this was wrong. And so they were open even to that, I think. And they, you know, even, they know that, like, their <clears throat> the graduate students make just absolute shit wages. And, you know, and that they, <clears throat> and that they, most of them think that, you know, they, they deserve to be paid more because Ann Arbor is a very expensive place to live. Uh, <clears throat> and they, and they, and because their instructors work very hard for them. I think it was it was a really valuable educational experience for a lot of people. I hope it'll be it'll be a meaningful one. Um, <clears throat> I think the I mean those incredibly brave resident uh, resident advisors who were, I mean were striking without a union, um, who were who you know <clears throat> who were striking from a job in which their pay is their housing. Uh, I mean the university threatened to withdraw threatened to kick them out of their housing. Uh, ab I mean absolutely hideous. Un I mean unthinkable kind of threats to give to these people but because a lot of a lot of RAs take the job because they are because their their families are, don't have a lot of financial resources or because they are uh, or be, uh, you know because they're a marginalized identity and they might not feel welcome at home you know the poor kids and a lot of queer kids who take jobs as RAs to threaten a, a group of workers that is that is disproportionately comprised of vulnerable people uh, is so I mean, I mean it, it's, it, it's satanic. It's, it is absolutely diabolical in the most literal sense of the word. And I think a lot of people got to see that. They got, you know, they got the relation between, between labor and capital unmasked for them. They got to see, you know, up close, um, you know, what the agenda of the high priests of mammon really is. Uh, and they found it really repulsive. And I, I hope that they're going to take that with them. So 
you know, in that sense, I, I, I think, I, I believe, and I hope that it, it was, it was a kind of, a kind of practical catechism, uh, for people, uh, on, on what it, what it really means to, uh, to live and act on behalf of other people and what the stakes of that action really are. Uh, well, I think that's a really profound note to end on <laughs> a good way to wrap up a conversation about, um, yeah, not only just, um, strikes and, and, uh, whatever, um, the challenges thereof, but also what it means to have a, a certain commitment and what it means to maybe, uh, be put in an environment that allows you to get those kinds of commitments. Um, so thanks. Uh, it's great to have a window into that. Um, also, uh, it's great to have you on the show, Dan, like we said earlier, it's been really fun to follow you on, on Twitter and follow some of your writing and just see what you're up to. Um, as we close, I just want to give you a chance to plug anything that you might want to, or if people wanted to find your work and your writing, how might they do that? If you want to find my, my, you know, all my published writing so far is at either current affairs or, or at, or at the bias at the, the Institute for Christian Socialism. If you, if you Google me and, um, search out, if you hate yourself enough to follow me on Twitter, um, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> really want that kind of poison in your brain. Um, you, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, uh, I, I assume, uh, you can put my, put, you guys can put my handle in the, in the description. And then, you know, if you want to read any of my other writing, um, uh, if you want to read my dissertation, uh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very evergreen tweet. Cool, Dan. Thanks so much. Yeah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard. And if you want to hear especially more about all these uh, big leftist Halloween mascots, you can do it at the Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. There you'll find uh, some early episodes. You'll find this other podcast that we do called the Magnificast Lock-In and uh, a a good group of folks who are there. So check that out for sure. Um, We've got a new sticker there. Uh, If you donate at the $10 or $11 amount for three months, you'll get a great sticker designed by Ryan Cagle. Uh, It's a Camilla Torre sticker. Man, it looks so cool. I can't wait to get one myself. Um, That's very neat. So check that out as well. Don't forget to find Dan. You can find his uh, Twitter handle in our show notes, and you can also find his writing at the at Current Affairs and The Bias. Our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. It never does get easier to say, does it? Uh, we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord